welcome you, Brother Huckabee. Come and do whatever the Lord directs you to do. We're thankful that you're a greater life. Well, why don't you lift your hands and open your hearts. Just love the Lord together. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. What a tremendous delight it is to be here uh, in Houston this morning with your church family, also with your pastor. I don't know if you know this. Uh, I am assuming from the presentation that you did, by the way, what a wonderful presentation, Sister Jill. And I was hoping that you would bring him a live dog. That's what I was prophesying. It didn't quite work that way, but I do love Brother Hughes and Sister Hughes, and you have hit the leadership jackpot. Amen. Amen. And so you are blessed beyond measure by their leadership and by their fellowship, and the Lord has been good to this church, and it is my honor to be here with the people of God this morning. I looked over to my left, and I saw Miss Daisy. That's what I call her, Sister Hughes, Dr. Hughes' wife. Uh, She gives great orders when she's riding in the back seat and you're driving. She is not short on instruction. And so as I was driving and just shopping, and of course Dr. Hughes is sitting beside me saying almost nothing, but in the back, Sister Hughes is directing the chariot. And so I said, I feel like today I'm driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) Amen. And so it's a delight to see you and your family. Isn't the Lord good? Amen. If you have your Bibles, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where I'll take my text this morning. I'll read three portions of scripture. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? And the Spirit of the Lord, verse 6, will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them and shalt be turned into another man. Verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. It's a tragedy of sorts. When God calls a man or a woman to his purpose... God doesn't make mistakes. God knows what he's doing. God does not fail. And when God begins the process of uniting the spirit of a man to a nation, he does so with forethought and understanding in the capacity to see beyond the immediacy of their time continuum. But it's in our text that the crisis of Saul's life is highlighted in just a few words. God called him. God knew what he was doing. 
God anointed him on purpose. The crisis that will ensue from Saul's life is not because he isn't prepared. It isn't because he is not anointed. It isn't because that God has not given him purpose. It's because somewhere along the journey, Saul forgot what God called him to be. The Lord will help me for just a few moments this morning. I want to preach the tragedy of misplaced purpose. The tragedy of misplaced purpose. Would you put your Bibles down, lift your hands and open your hearts, and let's invite the Lord to speak. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. I think it only appropriate one more time before you're seated. Would you just give an ovation of honor by putting your hands together for the 27 years, amen, that your pastor has invested in this city? Amen. Amen. 27 years, a strip mall, and three or four people, I'd say the Lord's been good. And he put the right man in the right place. Amen. Amen. Would you honor the Lord one more time? God bless you. You can be seated. Samuel the prophet. A man born from adversity. He is a barren woman's prayer request. Eli will openly rebuke Hannah in the temple as she struggles to eke out the words of her request. Mislabeled as a drunken woman, Hannah clarifies her request to the seer of Israel. If God, she said... Would grant me my petition, I will give my son back to the Lord that he may serve him in his temple all the days of his life. Samuel will learn the voice of the Lord and will mature into perhaps the greatest prophet of the Hebrew people. Samuel never missed. And not a word fell to the ground. And from Dan to Beersheba, everyone knew that he was established to be the prophet of the Lord. Samuel never missed. It's in the context of this story that Saul will meet Samuel in their first encounter. Here Saul solicits the help of the prophet as he endeavors to recover the straying livestock from the family farm. Saul meets a prophet that he can't even identify. And there, instructed by the Lord, Samuel takes a vial of oil and pours it upon his head and repeats these words. For God hath anointed you to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. 
God knows what he's doing when he anoints a man or a woman. God did not call Saul by mistake. 1 Samuel chapter 9 gives us a view of perhaps some of the giftings that Saul had as he became the anointed man for Israel. And there was not a goodlier man in all the nation. Defined from its original transliteration, the phrase simply means that Saul was the most appropriate intellectual and most valuable man in the nation. God chose Saul. He was the best that the nation had. He was brilliant, appropriate, the most valuable man with both propriety and intellect, and now with the fresh smell of anointing oil on his brow from the anointed hands of the prophet who never missed. Saul was God's man. But the tragedy of his life was not that he was not called, he was not anointed, or he was ill-prepared. The tragedy of Saul's life was that he misinterpreted the purpose God had called him to be. God never anointed Saul to be the king. In fact, if you view the text, you will find that God never refers to Saul as the king until the kingdom is being revoked from him. God called Saul to be the captain of the Lord's heritage. Captain is not a position of royalty. It is a position for a military commander. Because Saul was never intended to be a palace-dwelling monarch. He was anointed to be a battle-ready defender of the Lord's heritage. Could I stop right here and just make this parenthetical statement? And that is that there are some things worth fighting for. The people of God are not anointed to sit in the lazy boys of our affluency. But we are anointed to be the battle-ready defender of the heritage of the Lord. Some things are worth fighting for. I said some things are worth fighting for. Our faith is worth fighting for. Our families are worth fighting for. Our destiny is worth fighting for. God did not call us to relish in the anointing of our blessing. But God called us to take out our sword and get right in the middle of the battle. I'm glad to be a part of the church. The greatest church that God ever put together is the church that you and I belong to. But we are anointed to not remain where we are, but to take out our sword and take territory for the kingdom of God. Our faith is worth fighting for. 
we are in an embattled state among evangelicals who now are saying that repentance is not required for salvation. For to require repentance at salvation is to cause works to be an element of our salvific experience. And thus it negates the very act of faith by requiring action. I would just like to say to this beloved congregation of apostolics that repentance is still a requirement for salvation. Our faith is worth defending. You still must be baptized in the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is still a necessity to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking with tongues. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Without that Spirit, you're not in the body. Our faith is worth fighting for. Truth is worth fighting for. It's worth defending. Jude said this, that we should contend for the faith. Romans chapter 16. It almost is a dichotomy of terms. But Romans 16 says we should contend for unity. You know, Brother Hughes, unity is worth fighting for. While the basketball court may be a wonderful opportunity for competition, the church is not. The ministry association is not. The choir is not. The worship team is not. The leadership team is not. And beyond that, the greater body of Christ as we sit in this forum of worship is not a place of competition, but it is a place of brotherhood where we should be united in spirit. Not where we compete with one another, but we celebrate the successes of one another together. Our unity is worth fighting for. You know, the Bible said that Cain, Cain killed Abel. Bishop, we, we oftentimes associate that with a war between brothers, but it's really not. Because Cain does not hate Abel in the terms that we use to label hate. Because Cain's not trying to kill his brother. It's just what he has to do to control God. He's not trying to kill his brother. He's trying to eliminate God's options to bless. And if he can kill his brother, then God has no other choice than to accept his sacrifice.
So rather than change his sacrifice into something that pleases the Lord, he will kill his brother so God has no other option but to accept what he is offering. Can I help somebody? You ought to contend for unity. Because the act of disunity, if that's a word, the act of disunity is not about hating your brother. It's about eliminating the options that God can bless. We don't tear one another down. We don't tear one another down because we hate one another. We tear one another down because we want their blessing. And we think the only way we can get it is to eliminate the competition with God. And if we kill our brother, if we say he can't sing or she can't sing, then the only other option is to give the solo to me. If we say that they can't, they can't give or they can't serve or they've used some uh, iniquity, some act of iniquity to get their gain, then that means that we eliminate that option and now God has to flow through us. Can I help somebody? God will raise up a Seth before he will change what he requires. I feel a little help in this house. We ought to contend for unity. We ought to fight for it. If it's not my turn to sing the special, I ought to be cheering the guy on that is. Because this is not about my kingdom. This is about his purpose. This isn't my show. This is about an outpouring of the Spirit. This is about the Lord showing up. This is about someone walking in off the street that's had a needle in their veins or a bottle in their hand that have transgressed the laws of God that are struggling physically, spiritually, or financially. And the Holy Ghost courses across this auditorium and sets them free from the bondage of sin. This isn't my show. This is God's purpose. should contend for unity I wish somebody in this church would hear some wayward voice in the pew next to them and say don't you dare don't you dare talk about my preacher that's my man of God well you say brother Huckabee that's just not my nature Will you let somebody start talking about your Astros and see what you say? Well, you let somebody talk about your Texans. You let somebody talk about your Longhorns. You let somebody talk about your Cougars. And you'll say, uh-uh, don't you, oh no, oh no. We may not be where, where we ought to be right now, but we're going to get there. You just give us a year or two. I wish somebody would take that approach toward the people they're sitting next to in the pew. Instead of tearing one another down, why don't you open your mouth and say, don't you dare talk about them. 
They may not be where they need to be, but you just give them a year or two, they're on the journey to a destiny that the world cannot give them. You contend for unity. This is not the place where we take one another to task. This is the place where we honor God with the way we love one another. Some things are worth fighting for. There's a word that the old Jewish rabbis use. It's called Lashashan. The term, the term means that gossip is the equivalent of adultery. And the old rabbis said this. That their reference for it was that immorality or adultery was a sin against your own body. But your cavalier tongue is a sin against his body. And thus it makes them equal in their abomination in front of the Lord. Unity's worth contending for. I said, it's worth contending for. There are some things worth taking out your sword and battling for. And our unity and love and honor for one another. That's not just someone singing a special in the choir. That's your brother or sister. That's not just a musician whose turn it is to play with the choir on Sunday night. That's your brother or sister. And rather than compete, it's time to celebrate. Feel a little help. Some things are worth fighting for. Your families are worth fighting for. I said your family's worth fighting for. I'm going to say it again. Your family's worth fighting for. They may not be here today, but that doesn't mean they're not coming. You just got to fight for them. Whew, I feel a little help in this room. I feel like prophesying to somebody in this room. And you've been coming to church for a long time. But because you have engaged in the battle, God is working on your behalf. But he's not working on behalf of the passive or those who sit as the monarchy. But if you'll unsheath your sword and get in the middle of the battle, there are untold hundreds that are going to be saved by the power of your sword. Hughes, Ephesians chapter 4 says, neither give place to the devil. You know what that phrase means? In a common text or in a modern text, it says this, run the devil off. Run the devil off. Some of y'all been fighting and contending with things. You've had stuff in your homes. You've had things in your heart. You've been fighting battles you can't get free of. Some of you need to get up from your lazy boy. Take out your sword and run the devil off. 
Oh no, you can't have my husband. You can't have my wife. You can't have my children. You can't have my youth group. You can't have my pastor. You can't have my choir. You can't have my city. Somebody needs to run the devil off. Run him off. You're not welcome here. Some of you in the spirit need to walk to the doorway of your home. Unhinge that door and run the devil off. You can't live here. You can't survive here. I'm going to pray and fast and fight until you're gone. Yeah. Some things are worth fighting for. I got a lady in my church. Her name's Paula. One Sunday I was preaching. You know, there's this fine line between a word and losing your mind. And sometimes I I waver back and forth. And I was preaching one Sunday and Paula had been coming to church for 24 years. Her husband's a big old guy. He's a biker. He rides his Harley all the time. Joe had been to church in the three years I'd been the pastor six times because he was a good Catholic going to a Pentecostal church. And he came on Easter and Christmas because the kids were in programs and that's the only times he came. All three girls, apostolics. Bible quizzers. Paul has got up every Sunday morning dressed those girls for on the church. They've been in every program. They've been to every camp. They've been on AYC trips. Joe, don't come to church. One Sunday I was preaching and the Holy Ghost just came on me and I turned. She sits on that side of the room. I turned and I pointed to her and I said, Paula, do you really think that Joe's going to be lost? I said, that man's paid for every Bible quiz trip. He's paid for every youth camp and every youth convention and every AYC trip. I said, he put gas in your tank to come to church every Sunday and every Wednesday night and every special event. And I said, beyond that, he's cleaned more hair out of the drain in your house with three girls than any other man in Excelsior Springs. I said, do you think he's going to be lost? I said, no. I said, in fact, he don't know this, but I'm going to marry all three of his daughters to apostolic men. I'm going to dedicate his grandbabies at an apostolic altar. He don't know it, but when he dies, I'm going to preach his funeral in an apostolic church. I mean, it preaches good, but the next Sunday he wasn't there. And the next Sunday he wasn't there. And the next Sunday he wasn't there. But one night, Paula talked him into coming to church on Power Weekend. Bad idea if you want to be lost. Holy Ghost got to moving. A guy in the church goes back there and kneels down in front of Joe's pew and starts praying over his feet. This big old biker, he's just sitting there. 
he lifts his hands about like this. And when he does, we start to pray for him. In just a minute, a little tear starts trickling. The only one I've ever seen trickle out of his eye. And when he did, all of a sudden, something started rippling up his side and came out his mouth. And he started to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. I looked over at Sister Paula. I said, Paula, go back there and ask him if he wants to be baptized in Jesus' name. He said, I don't need to be baptized in Jesus' name. I was sprinkled when I was a boy. I didn't fuss with him. He's a big old boy and rides a bike, you know. So it's about two weeks later. She calls me on the phone. She said, Pastor. She said, Selena's in town. She said, uh, Joe wants to know if he can take you to supper. Good idea, just a little help for you. Taking the preacher to supper is always a good idea. <clears throat> I said, I'd love it. She said, and by the way, he was wondering if maybe he could run by the church before we go eat and you could baptize him in Jesus' name. Hey! There's another lady in the church that's been coming to church a long time with an unsaved husband. Sister Paula reaches in her Bible and she takes out this prayer marker that has represented Joe for 24 years and she walked it over to the other side of the room and she gave it to the other lady. It took 24 years, but God answered my prayer and so now I'm going to start praying for your answer. Let me help somebody. I don't know how long you waited for your answer, but if you'll stay in the fight we serve a God who is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all you can ask or think according to the power that worketh in you Some things are worth fighting for. You can be seated. I'm going to try to get this finished in record time. Saul will forget what he is called to. He will circumvent the office of the prophet and will offer his own burnt offering because Samuel has been delayed on his journey. I'm going to make two statements here. Firstly, don't ever circumvent the preacher. Your gift is that God put a man of God in your life. And if you can't align with God's man and his plan, then you cannot align with God. And the other is that you had better wait on God. You wait on him. Because time's a tattletale. It'll reveal the difference between a tear and wheat. It will identify the fool from the wise. And it will expose the wicked heart of a king who has deviated from the course he was called to. Saul is at least two to four years into his appointment 
before he builds an altar. You need an altar. You need an altar. And notice I said an altar, not an offering place. Because there's a difference between an altar and an offering place. Because altars require sacrifice. And fire comes to sacrifice. But you can give an offering anywhere. Jesus, it appears in Matthew 21, it's almost out of his character when he, it appears in anger, goes into the temple and starts whipping and turning over tables. And Jesus says this phrase that we accompany with prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. The same text goes on to say that both the buyer and the seller are considered thieves. If this text, as some theologians believe, is just about the improper measurements of money, then the buyer is not a thief. But when Jesus begins to speak of the actions that are ongoing in the temple, he calls them both thieves, both the buyer and the seller. The reason I believe that he considers them both to be thieves is because they are giving an opportunity for offering without requiring a sacrifice. Because on your way home from work, you don't have to go into your field and take out the land that you have labored for. Required in a perfect sacrifice is to take out the comb and go through the hairs to make sure that there aren't more than four discolored hairs on that woolen lamb. But you can let someone else do all the work. You can let someone else feed the offering. You can let someone else do all the work of the offering and you can simply show up and put a shekel in the hand of the man who has done all the work and enjoy the fire of watching your sins be ablotted or watch your sin being atoned for by simply an act of offering and not sacrifice. And Jesus walked into the house of God and he said it makes me angry when you think that you can come to a house on Sunday and you can just enjoy what someone else has worked for and you can worship in an act of offering but there is no sacrifice in your spirit the church don't need your token offering and the church don't need your token service and the church don't need you to just show up in opportunities of worship but the kingdom requires that you align with sacrifice a place of death, a place of not knowing what tomorrow holds, a place that requires fire that will obliterate the sin and inconsistency in the sacrifice. You can have an offering without ever being sacrificial. 
Romans 12, 1 says, present yourselves a living sacrifice unto God. The problem with living sacrifices is that we keep jumping off the altar when the heat gets turned up. And so, it's to the man who is called and chosen and anointed. But he cannot build altars. He does not sacrifice. He does not align with the prophet's voice. He cannot wait on the Lord. And now his actions have turned into something spiritual, which is the act of rebellion. You see, we call it heresy when a nation or a religion crafts a wooden god and offers its sacrifice. But rebellion is the act of making yourself God. We may, may not worship in some act of heresy or spiritual treason to a handcrafted God. But too often times we turn inwardly and become self-reliant and create our own doctrines and cherry pick the word of God and take out of it what we want and malign what we don't desire so that we can live how we want, when we want, and God calls it stubborn. Simply put, it is the out of hand rejection of God so that you might be the king supreme of your own destiny. It's here that the prophet peers into the eyes of a backsliding king. And in verse 22, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Behold, thou hath rejected the word of the Lord and he hath rejected thee from being king. Anybody ever said it's better to ask forgiveness than permission? The word of God here calls him a fool. He said, I'm glad that the Lord is merciful. But the truth is we should be responsible with that mercy. And it would be better off, it would be better off to do the right thing than it is to constantly depend on the grace of God to bail you out of intentional sin. Because if we're not careful, we create the heresy and become a five-point Calvinist who believes that we can live however we want and still be saved. So what do you do? Come here and help me, bud. What do you do when you don't have an altar? Now, the way this works is you get to be Saul. B. 
because I'm preaching. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> when you're preaching, you let somebody else be soft. Sounds good. So what do you do when you are anointed? You are called. You have purpose. Watch this. But you have no altars. You refuse to sacrifice. There is no voice of a prophet that you will align with. You circumvent his voice to offer your own offering. You become stubborn and rebellious and reject God as the supreme authority and you become the monarch that sits on the throne of your own life. What do you do? Glad you asked. You become appearance oriented. Bible said they're sitting there by the altar. And Samuel says those faithful words, the Lord has rejected thee. And hath anointed a man better than thee to be the king of this nation. Saul does not have a rebuttal for the statement. He still refuses to repent. He doesn't say, where have I gone wrong? Let me align with the Lord. Let me repent and do right. He simply says, okay, but will you stand here and worship with me in front of the host of Israel? In other words, will you stand here by me and make it look like I have something that is long since departed? Will you stand here by me and make it look like I'm anointed even though the anointing is on the brow of another man? Can I help somebody? God, help the church if we ever become a forum or a society or a group that has a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. It's okay to look like the church and sound like the church and fellowship like the church but when we show up in meetings like this, no sick people are healed and no no people in bondage are being delivered and no one's being touched by the power of God. Somebody help us to not be satisfied with being and appearing to be a church but we must be the ecclesia that called out the anointed. I'm done. Stand to your feet. Saul, Saul goes from being the anointed. Stay with me because I'm going to preach you to the altar, but I'm going to preach you happy. He goes from being the anointed, Bishop Hughes, to being the man who can recognize anointing, but just take shots at it when it walks in the room. He knows what it feels like. He knows what it is to be head and shoulders above the rest. To have the anointing of that old prophet on his brow. But now all he can do is recognize it on others and take shots at what he once possessed.
as his destiny. How do you do that? How do you go from being a litany of giftings and anointings that Saul is and possesses to being the rejected who can only recognize him? Y'all ready for this? Because he lost his ability to confront an enemy. He lost his stomach for war. He became passive and found it easier to sit down at the negotiating table and form a treaty with his enemy than to take up his sword and get in the battle that he was anointed to fight. Why do you send a lad, a 15-year-old child, fight a giant when you're head and shoulders above every other man in the nation that you are more equipped for but instead you'll endeavor to put your coat of mail on a lad who is unproven and thus he will walk out with a sling and a stone and take out a champion that God called you to fight Samuel takes a knife and kills the king of Amalek, King Agag, when God said, I want you to kill every one of the inhabitants of that nation. I don't want you to let a lamb, a goat, a herd, Don't you let anything live. You kill every man, woman, boy, or girl. And when the prophet shows up, he takes a knife out of his belt and he carves up that heathen king in front of the host of Israel because the man of God has to do something that day that God called Saul to do. Can I stop right here and say this? Don't show up to your pastor's office and ask him to carve up an enemy that's trying to take out your destiny because you don't want to get in a showdown for your future. Those are external enemies and the last is internal because when an evil spirit comes on Saul, rather than falling on his face and calling on the Lord for deliverance. He will ask for a harvest and the lyrist will finger out a tune that will drive the evil spirit away because Saul has lost his ability to confront his enemies both internal and external. But God said... I've got a man. By the way, he's a man after my own heart. And he's never seen a fight he didn't like. We're introduced to him in a battle. He walks out, outmatched, outmanned, outmaneuvered. And he walks out into the battlefield and he takes on the Philistines champion. You know how he got prepared for that fight? Because he had already been in a fight with a lion and a bear. And he said, all I got 
on the backside of this desert is a fight and a song. And I'm telling you, there's not too many enemies you can't defeat if you got a little fight and a song in you. David said, I ain't got much, but I got a little fight and I got a little song. And God said, a man with a fight and a song is a man after my own heart. We introduced to David in a fight. And when David dies, he's in a fight. Give me just a couple minutes. I'll be done at 1210. The Lord will help me. Oh, David. David's on his deathbed. And he calls his boy in because he's about to transition the kingdom. I'm trying to think about the things I would say lastly if I were transitioning to my son. Do something nice for your mom. Honor your mom. Love your brothers. Honor the Lord. He said all that, but not then. He said, hey, David. I'm sorry. Hey, Samuel. You remember Joab? Yeah. Kill him. One more thing, son. You remember Shimei? Yes, sir. Kill him. The next verse. And David was gathered unto his fathers. We're introduced with David. He's in a fight. And when David dies, he's still got a fight in his spirit. I've come to tell somebody in this room, you're called to a fight. And this morning, if you're in it, then you're in the right place. And you're still aligned with your purpose. And you still have anointing on you. And you still have spiritual authority. You may not know what the answer is or how to navigate into your tomorrows. But if you're in a fight, you just take out your sword. Get right back in the middle of the battle. Because you're in the right place at the right time. Hear me. David's life is marked by one fatal flaw. His adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. He walks out on his veranda. He peers in the neighboring window of the bathing maid. Lust is conceived in his heart. He beckons her to his palace. And there he commits adultery. It will bring the sword on his house. And the transgression of his sin will never depart. He will live with that until he is buried. You know why he commits adultery? Because the Bible said, and in the day when kings go to war, David stayed home. The only mishaps you have is when you don't go to battle. The only times you fail is when you get out of the bed and say, I'm going to take a day off. The only times you have a mishap or a mistake or you fail is the day you wash your hands of the war that you're in. But if you'll get up this morning and you'll unsheath your sword and you'll get right back in the middle of the battle, you are aligned with God's purpose. 
purpose for your life. I'm done. We got a little lady in our church. My wife's giving her a Bible study. She said, she called me. I was away preaching. She said, babe, she said, driving down the road, there was a spirit spoke to me out of that woman. I don't know if it's ever happened in my life. She said, that woman, somebody needs to hear me right now. She said, that woman looks over at me and she said, with a contorted face and a change in her dialect. She said, leave me alone. She said, I will destroy you. She said, I will destroy your family and I will create chaos in your church. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there isn't anything the enemy could have said that hit closer to home for my wife nor spoke greater to her fears than what the enemy said that day. He knew just what to say. He knew her past and he always speaks to the past he never speaks to the future he knows what your greatest fears are he knows what your greatest struggle is he knows where your challenges are and that's what he'll speak to he don't speak to your strengths he speaks to your weaknesses my wife said hold on just a minute she said babe I don't know what happened to me it took me a second but I recognized what was going on she said I looked back and I said Sherry tell that spirit to come back I want to talk to it She said, Sherry looked at me and she said, I just remembered when I was a little girl and I'd get scared in the dark. My dad used to tell me that if I had more Jesus in my little pinky finger than the enemy had in all his arsenal. She said, so I just held up my pinky finger. She said, I said, let me tell you something. I didn't come all the way over here to fall to the likes of you. She said, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and fast until you're gone. Can I tell somebody that Sherry was baptized in Jesus' name and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost? The only battles you lose are the ones you refuse to fight in. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare surrender. If you're in a battle today, you're in the right place at the right time. Lift your hands all over this room. Open your spirit to the Lord. And you engage the battle. Greater is he that is within you than he that's in the world.